Okay, I think we'll start. Um, I'm going to keep a very good eye on the time, otherwise the chorus over here will be hooting. <laughs> I, want to <clears throat> I want to pick up this evening on a phrase I used last night. It might have passed you by. I mean, everybody was very tired last night. And use this in a sense as a way of exploring a particular theme. And it wasn't a quotation from Buddhism, it was a quotation from Goethe. You know, the German poet, and many, many other things other than a poet and writer. Um, and the quotation was, the present alone is our only happiness. The present alone is our only happiness. And so that's the kind of theme, and I want us to keep that in the background of our minds um, in this exploration that I really want to try and conduct. And there's a sense of weaving together disparate material from not just the Buddhist tradition, but from other traditions as well, to try and you know, get us to at least glimpse what that present moment might mean for us when we talk about this as being our only happiness or the only possibility of happiness. I'll start with a quotation from the Buddha, from the Majjhima Nikaya, from the Middle Length Discourses. And the Buddha says this, he says, you shouldn't chase after the past or place expectations on the future. What is past is left behind. The future is yet unreached. Whatever quality is present, you clearly see right here, right there. Right here, right there. And he repeats that. The phrase is actually repeated in the Pali. Before we get to that, I want to sketch, in a sense, the problem. Uh, the Buddha starts, as you will know, and you'll have probably many of you will have attended many, many Dharma talks before. He starts with a problem. And basically, if you like, the Buddha says, you've got a problem. Yeah. That's where he starts. He doesn't start with a whole load of doctrine. He starts with the problem. You've got a problem. And that problem really is the problem that we translate as dukkha. And I know, again, you will have heard this and you will have heard it many, many times. <clears> that <throat> This uh, word doesn't get translated as suffering, really. It has many, many different meanings. It's a spectrum word in the original language. Um, covers everything from minor, kind of minor irritation to major distress. And everything in between that. And so dukkha is our problem. And um, what the Buddha is really trying to look at is our sense of we've got a problem. And trying to make us aware that there is this problem. And actually we're in some way complicit in the problem. You know, we're somehow inveigled into it and actually exacerbating it, making it worse. One of the things I think we all know is life is difficult. And it doesn't get any easier. It wasn't easy two and a half thousand years ago in the Buddha's time in 5th century BC India. And it certainly isn't now. And in fact, in many ways, it could probably be even what I would say is actually the misery is just more complex now. Yeah, that we often live in because of our systems of communication, because of our awareness of all sorts of things, that we live in a world that's, in a sense, permeated by dukkha. And we're aware of it. We're aware of things happening in faraway places, which, of course, wasn't happening in the Buddha's time. So we have that awareness of dukkha. We also have the dukkha that's arising because of modern living conditions, and the way that we live now with the greater and greater demands on us. 
Um, I think the Buddha would probably gone slightly crazy with the, the quantity of emails that most people receive these days. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't a problem for him, as you well know. And I think for many of us, we live lives of what I think W.H. Auden referred to as quiet distress. Yeah. Sometimes it's not actually at a high manifestation level, um, but often at a very, what I call, background level, where it's like the irritant in life. Yeah. Does that feel familiar? Yeah. Um, I had it once described to me when I was very lucky enough when I was in the monasteries in India to study with one of the Dalai Lama's teachers, um, one of his tutors. And he always described dukkha as slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. <laughs> yeah. This was the experience of dukkha, just like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. Notice, actually, it's quite a nice simile, isn't it? Because it actually encompasses something. One about repetition. Yeah, doing things again and again and again. And the other aspect of it, of course, is often you know, when we start to rub in that way or rub ourselves in, in against something which is rough as a surface, it doesn't hurt initially. It's the repetition that makes it hurt. And so, in a sense, what the Buddha is trying to do in his teaching, and particularly in these early texts, is explore, in a sense, that repetitive pattern-making that we engage in that causes you know, us to move from minor-level distress into major-level distress. Yeah. And I just want to read you a, a short poem, and I think, again, it's, it's something which, again, is coming from the Western tradition. It's actually written by an English poet. I think it was published in 1957. Some of you might know it. It's a, quite a famous poet. It's called Not Waving But Drowning yeah. um, by somebody called Stevie Smith. And it goes like this. Nobody heard him, the dead man, but still he lay moaning. I was much further out than you thought and not waving but drowning. Poor chap, he always loved larking and now he's dead. It must have been too cold for him. His heart gave way, they said. Oh, no, 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 it was always too cold. Still the dead one lay moaning. I was much too far out all of my life and not waving but drowning. Yeah. How do we turn this around? How can we be you know, doing the opposite of what's implied there? Not drowning but waving. <laughs> yeah. And in a sense, I think there's a lot of things which are captured in this very short poem that actually is very indicative of the modern condition. Being too far out, what does that mean? What does that, can that possibly mean to us? Being somehow feeling too far out of our depth. I mean, existentially sometimes, is that how it feels? Yeah, we just get out of our depth in all sorts of areas of life. Yeah. And so we end up drowning under the circumstances and not being able, because we have no resources to draw on, you know, to help us. You know, there's no flotation collars or anything like that that we can use to help us. And so we end up, in a sense, submerging ourselves, going under in what, you know, what, we, what we live in, either our work situations, our home situations, or combinations of those. 
And I, I don't particularly want to start us off in a miserable tone, but I just want to kind of set the problem. <laughs> yeah. I sometimes might feel my job, actually, at the beginning of opening retreat-type talks is to make you miserable so everybody else can cheer you up at the end. <laughs> yeah. So look forward to their talks. <laughs> so that's the problem. I think that's very modern. This is a very modern problem, although I think it's also a very ancient problem, and this is the one that the Buddha identifies, that somehow we get too far out. You know, too far out of our depths in life, can't cope with the things that are there for us. And hence, we do something. We try to plan to make ourselves happy. Yeah. Does that sound familiar? We're out there in the future, planning. You know, we're very futural beings. The German philosopher Heidegger once said that you know, human beings are always ahead of themselves, you know, out there in the future doing stuff. Coming back to what the Buddha was saying in that quotation, as you can see in that quotation, he's saying, you know, that past is, that past is gone, that future hasn't arrived yet. We don't know what that will be. We live in very uncertain conditions at the moment in the world. Yeah. I think the world is in turmoil. Um, whether it's always been so, I think history probably would confirm in different ways. Um, and our knowledge of it is much, much greater. But we live in times of turmoil. We live in times of change. We live in times of instability. But again, I would say that has probably always been so. So this is our existential task. How do we live with that instability? Yeah. How do we live with the uncertainty, the insecurity? Yeah. The instability, but it's often just ourselves. Yeah. Often we are amazingly unstable. And I don't mean that in terms of any mental health problem. I mean just we're unstable. You know, we're contradictory beings a lot of the time. I'm sure your partners probably point this out to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how do we live with this? How do we live with the uncertainty? How do we, to put it in more, much more Buddhist terms, how do we live with the impermanence? Yeah. Now, one way, and it doesn't seem uh, a sort of incorrect way in many senses, does it, is to try and plan for stability, to try and plan in a way that might give a semblance of security for us. Yeah? I would suggest that's actually what many of us do, isn't it? We plan to get that something in the future. Yeah. The philosopher Pascal, I've often read it out, actually, in gatherings like this. I think the last time I was here at IMS, I even read it out. You know, the philosopher Pascal, and mathematician, once said, you know, we're inevitably always planning for happiness in the future. And because we're always planning for it, it will never be so. Yeah. We will never reach it. We will never get it, because we can't plan for it. Yeah. In an unstable world, how can we guarantee that that is going to happen? That that very thing that we're aiming at is, is going to happen? And so what do we do? We fall back into dukkha again. You know, again, I don't, this is not to make you miserable, it's just to delineate the problem. Yeah. And yet, then again, we might get caught in the repetitive pattern of, well, that didn't work, I'll plan again. Yeah. And plan again. And plan again. 
And so our whole life gets consumed by a sense of futurity, which ultimately, of course, ends in death. Yeah. Actually ends you know, with our you know, with our demise, with our disappearance in this world. So I think what's being pointed to is something about this present moment. That this present moment isn't empty. It's somehow rich. It's very, very, very rich. And often because of that tendency to be futural, we overlook, don't we, constantly what's going on in the present moment. We overlook, in sense, the immensity of richness that's here in this present moment. Yeah. Could you stand another poem? I'm going to read you another poem. Yeah. Let me just find it. It's a poem by Fernando Pessoa. Somebody, some of you might know his work. He's a Portuguese poet. And he captures something very nicely about this, about this futurity, you know, this sense of going out there in the future, thinking about things in the future. Beyond the bend in the road, there may be a well and there may be a castle. And there may be just one more road. I don't know and I don't ask. As long as I'm on the road that before, that's before the bend, I look only at the road before the bend. Because the road before the bend is all I can see. It would do me no good to look anywhere else or at what I can't see. Let's pay attention to where we are. There's enough beauty in being here and not anywhere else. If there are people beyond the bend in the road, let them worry about what's beyond the bend in the road. That, for them, is the road. If we're to arrive there, when we, are, when we arrive there, we'll know. For now, we know only that we're not there. Here, there's just the road before the bend, and before the bend, there's the road without any bend. I think it captures something, without going into sort of kind of any literary analysis of that, I think it captures something about our experience, doesn't it? Yeah. Paying attention to where we are. Yeah. That wonderful phrase, I hope you, I hope it sort of, you picked up on it. You know, there is enough beauty of simply being here. Yeah. And yet, we are always looking towards the future. There's another element. I've tried to make you miserable over the first part of this talk, so I'll try and pick you up now. Um, there's another element, of course, that often doesn't get spoken about that much in relationship to our practice, but is actually, in many senses, one of the driving forces and the fuels behind what we do, which is actually a sense of joyfulness. Yeah. And that joyfulness is not... We can't plan for it, can we? Yeah, you can't plan to be joyful. Or I think I'll plan to be joyful in a couple of hours' time. Yeah, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Joy is experience. It's very much of this moment, isn't it? It's what arises in this moment. And the more you even try to cling on to it, it's like grasping after sand or water. It disappears very, very quickly. Yeah. So we can't pin it down. We can't plan for it. 
And actually, in a sense, we can't even go back to it in the past. We can think about pleasures in the past and joyful situations, but we don't, in a sense, re-experience them, do we, in the same way. So joy is of this present moment. So when we start talking about this present moment, then we're not talking about something that's empty and not something that, can't be, that can be measured. We live in a, a society these days which is obsessed with quantification. Yeah. I don't know if you've, again, if you notice that. Obsessed with measurement. Yeah. And we can get into the idea, well, what exactly is the present moment? How can I measure it? Yeah. Is this now that I've just spoken in gone? Is that? I mean, this is ridiculous. What we're talking about is a present moment, which is the present moment of experience. It's much more to do with our phenomenal apprehension of it. Actually, how we feel this moment, how we feel this being here at this moment. Now, that moment is obviously not empty. It's obviously not empty. That past is, in a sense, the actual details of it is past, but it's still here with you. But only in that present moment. The future that hasn't yet arrived, in a sense, is here with you in this present moment. So this is the, in a sense, the nexus, the coming together of all these forces that we might refer to as past and future. Coming together in this moment here. And so what we're, in a sense, trying to perhaps apprehend in much of our practice is the richness of this moment. And in that richness, of course, there is much that's not pleasant. So we're not talking about unalloyed joy, unalloyed pleasantness, unalloyed pleasure. What we're talking about is a richness of the diversity of what is actually happening, actually now, for you. We are that coming together, aren't we, of everything that has passed into this present moment. And some of that will be painful, but much of it will be joyful. One of the other things, perhaps, that's going on is that we're learning to see. And I use that as a metaphor for all of our senses. Learning to really come to our senses in a very profound sense, coming to our senses. The richness of our bodily experience, so much of what has been the ground base of the practice today, isn't it? The richness of that bodily experience. So So much of which gets lost when we become so headbound, divorced from our, our bodies. James Joyce had a wonderful way of referring to somebody in one of his stories called Dubliners and said, Mr. Duffy lived at some distance from his body. (laughs) I know lots of people like that, do you? (laughs) You live at some distance from your body. I live in an academic community a lot of the time, so you see heads, (laughs) not a lot of bodies. (laughs) You can tell them, by the way, if you've not seen, if you ever go into an academic community, you see how they walk. The head goes forward. 
I'm joking about this, but I think we all have know what this experience of is that sort of almost slightly disembodied experience. Now we're coming to some richness and, in a sense, recollection of being in this moment through our bodily experience. This very simple practice that you've been doing today, you know, as I think Kinchino almost referred it to it as deceptively simple. Because it's so hard to do, isn't it? It's actually so hard to stay with those simple instructions without overcomplicating them, making it into something far more difficult to be with that process of the being with the breath and body, that simple process, and noticing the distractedness and bringing ourselves back to that present moment experience. And something that's so indicative about both of these experiences, of course, is they are present moment experiences. They are not futural. They are not past. It's never a past breath. It's never a future breath. It's only the breath of this moment. Equally with all of our body experiences, all of our body sensations. It's either the pain or the pleasure bodily physically, of this moment, not of the future. So we're coming back. This is our anchor into this present moment. Yet we sometimes squander that. We overlook it. And I suppose if there's any message that I'm really trying to convey to you tonight in this talk is about when we come back to this present moment, it's not just as a rote, of course, you know, the, in the sense Buddhism says whatever that means, that we must come back to the present moment and be in the present moment. Coming back to that present moment is where that possibility, where that possibility of happiness lies. Yeah. And sometimes we squander that in that futural tendency. That tendency to project into, well, if only I got something. And that doesn't have to just be material possessions. If only I got the intellectual knowledge I want or the job or the whatever it is, I would be happy. And it's out there, and if I plan for it, I might actually get there. But of course, you know, there is mortality. Yeah. We are beings that will die. Yeah. We can plan and plan and plan, and eventually death will catch up with us you know, at some point. I was sharing, I was sharing a Woody Allen aphorism with uh, Kinchino and Christina last night, which was wonderful about death. He says, I don't want to live on in the hearts of others. I want to live on in my apartment. (laughs) 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 So death is there. Yeah, it's there. And we don't know when it's going to happen. I mean, we really, really do not know when it's going to happen. And... Interestingly, though, that those often who are diagnosed with terminal illnesses with something 
that you know, is, brings them much closer to that sense of mortality suddenly start to experience the richness of what is here. There was a British playwright, I always remember, because he was interviewed just about, I think it was about three months before he died on British television. Some of you might have heard of him, he might not be even known over here. But his name was Dennis Potter, and he wrote quite a lot of quite extremely good television plays and, and um, stage plays. And he was interviewed, as I say, just a, you know, three months before he died, and he was di dying from pancreatic cancer. And he said, for all these years, and I forget how old he was, and he was in his 70s when he died. He said, for all these years that I've lived, I have never experienced a cherry blossom like I have done this year. Because I think the interview was in, in, sort of in, in May or something in, in Britain. I've never experienced it in that way. Hands on hearts, how many times do we often, can we often really, in a sense, say that to ourselves? I've never experienced it in that way. And it might be something very mundane. Yeah. It might be something very familiar to us. Yeah, and, and we go through the fall, we go through the spring... And these things are very familiar to us, but how often, and this is a genuine question, it's not just a rhetorical question, how often do we really experience because we're out there planning? Yeah. We're out there planning. Out there planning to be happy. Yeah. And yet there is something which is opening to us at this very moment, something opening to us, giving itself to us, at this very moment, and we ignore it in that future or planning. Yeah. Does that often feel, does that make sense to you? That, that we miss so much of what's going on because of that obsession with the future, of moving towards that future. Even, uh, dare I say it, in the world of meditation and the world of spiritual practices and everything, people get obsessed with perfecting themselves in the future. Yeah. And I think there's something that's rather brings us up short when we say, actually, when the Buddha starts talking about waking up, that waking up is not just for the future, that waking up is here right now. And that is a possibility right now for us. And it's a lovely, it's a lovely, in a sense, phrase, isn't it? Waking up. Yeah. And, and I think all of us, all three of us, use this term much, in much greater preference to the term enlightened. Because yeah. waking up just sounds almost so basic to what we're doing. So we, you know, often, as in the case of Dennis Potter, that playwright, you know, we can wake up to the experience in the confrontation with our mortality, in the confrontation being brought up short by the fact that I might not experience this again. Yeah. And what goes with the joy that that brings is, of course, that deep sense of appreciation the appreciation for being, yeah. that 
we so often, when we're caught up in our neurotic patterns of wanting and not wanting, what unfolds, and it's, of course not everything in life is pleasant, as we know. I started off by saying it's difficult. You know, much of what happens in life is difficult. But we get almost sucked in to the sheer difficulty and the aversion and being locked into the aversion, it's almost like we miss those profound, even minutiae of experiences that are there, that give themselves to us and actually make even just one day mundane daily experience meaningful for you if you open to it when it gives itself to you. And that can be just the feeling of the wind on your skin, in your hair, the feeling of water on a hot day, on a skin. These are very sensory sometimes. The play of light that often is there as it refracts through a window or we see it at a sunset or a sunrise. Or even just the simple contact and you've had this already in the sense of being aware of the contact of the one hand resting in the other. The warmth and the heaviness and the feeling of that. Yet, if I kind of put those rather prosaically, it sounds, oh yeah, those are really familiar, aren't they? Yeah, really, really familiar. So familiar, I mean, we have that phrase in English, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. Yeah. Well, it's certainly if it's not contempt, it, breathe, it sort of breeds indifference to what is there. And so, so much of the practice is, in a sense, awakening the senses. Not for sensory grasping, not for that craving that often comes for sensory experience and for greater and greater hits of sensory experience, but for opening to what is presenting itself to you at this moment. Because what will happen is what will happen as with all phenomena in our lives. It will arise and it will pass away, as the Buddha constantly says in the texts. That's the nature, that's the very warp and woof of our phenomenal world. It is impermanent. It's arising and passing away, and we will arise and pass away. And those who we know will arise and pass away. And when we really begin to take that on board, is not this a moment for, in a sense, waking up to our sense of being here? Waking up to that sense of the deep appreciation. So for me, and this is very personal, for me, hand in hand with this sense of waking up goes that for that deep sense of appreciation of just simply being here at this moment, talking to you, eating my food, breathing, 
feeling the air on the skin. You know, all of these things. Yet, we can plan and we can plan and we can plan. And that happiness which is open to us as a gift, freely given at this moment, we can ignore. And if you want to know, often, often the Buddha traces part of our dilemma, part of our sense of dukkha. You know, I'm going to turn it into a verb, dukkering, in this world. You know, part of that sense of dukkering in this world is based and traceable to what, I'm going to say it quickly, we call ignorance. Yeah. Let's hear it in a slightly different way. This is ignorance. It's as much about what we ignore as simple deprivation of knowledge. Actually, a lot of knowledge is coming through our senses. True knowing. Yeah. We walk through the world sometimes as if we don't perceive it. Yeah? Lacking deep appreciation and connectedness with this world. And so what we move from is perhaps that sense of ignorance to opening to, well, we use all sorts of words about this in you know, sitting in a center called Insight Meditation Society into a sense of insight. But insight here is a sense of disclosure. What is disclosing itself to you at this moment? It's almost like I could almost set you a little task here. What is, you know, what is disclosing itself to you at this moment? What is there for you at this moment? Coupled with that often goes that sense of care. Yeah. That sense of care, that sense of appreciation, that sense of being with something. This is a quotation from one of the ancient Greeks. The beauty and the mystery of this world only emerges through affection, attention, interest, and compassion. See this world by attending to its colors, its detail, and I love this last bit, and its irony. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful quote, isn't it? You know, this world emerges through affection, attention, interest, and compassion. Yeah. These are the qualities that in a sense we're cultivating. Let's use that word. It's a so much nicer word than meditation. Yeah. sense of growing something. Yeah. Bringing into being, as Christina said, you know, when she introduced this, I think on you know, last night. Bringing something into being, growing it. Almost like a horticulturalist. Yeah. Tending something very precious, fragile and precious and growing it. And we can be growing that affection. We can be growing, as I think we are, when we engage in these practices, attention. We're certainly growing compassion yeah, for what is. Yet, let's come back to the reality. So much of this is what we ignore. 
we ignore that potentiality that we have that gets almost codified in the history of Buddhism in all various ways and it ends up in, for example, in forms of Zen Buddhism and later forms of Buddhism, something like Buddha mind. It really is trying to indicate that sense of potentiality that people have to really wake up. And you can take this very seriously as something within each individual or just that set of potentials that we all have within our minds to be able to really connect with this present moment, with all its richness, with all its diversity, with all its pain, with all its pleasure, but also with all its joy in this moment. So we're opening up ourselves to that possibility of being able to connect with this. I said, of course, that um, sometimes it brings serious health issues, sometimes even terminal diagnosis for us to actually really connect in this way. And what I think is being said, not just by the Buddha, but by many other thinkers in other traditions as well, including Western traditions, is in a sense that if we hold that vision of mortality before our eyes, knowing that it's an inevitability, then we can really truly live because we're not always planning to live. Notice that it's, it's slightly strange, isn't it? You know, we don't live because we're planning to live. Yeah. We're not happy because we're planning to be happy. Yeah. Because it's futural. And what that sense of mortality does is it brings us back to that appreciation. And again, I'd just like to read you something because, <clears throat> and I get, I've shared this many times, and every time I read it, I still find it quite moving. It was written, this is a little book called Rowing Without Oars. And it was written by somebody who was a Swedish television presenter. And she was kind of at the top of her game in Sweden. And then suddenly was diagnosed with motor neurone disease. Um, Very rapid onset motor neurone disease at that, um, called ALS. And she wrote this book which is really like a journal of the end of her life and takes her right up to the point where she couldn't write any further about this. And just a couple of passages I want to read you, which I really think hopefully brings this home to us. We don't necessarily have to get into this situation of having a terminal diagnosis, but can learn something from those who do. And this is what she says. I'm going to die of ALS if nothing unpredictable happens. And the two roads that I can take, one is to lie down and simply be bitter and wait. The other is to make something worthwhile of the misfortune. See it in a positive light, however banal that might sound. My road is the second. I have to live in the immediate present. There is no bright future for me, but there is a bright present. Children live like this, only for the present. Nothing coming afterwards. Therefore I laugh like a child uncontrollably. The whole of my adult life I have thought, it will be all right in the end. I have to do this first, then it will be all right. 
But this way of thinking is no longer possible for me. The strange thing is that nowadays, now that I'm terminally ill, I feel moments of great, great joy, such as I've hardly ever felt before. Happiness has never been a constant for me, but now it is becoming one. That's why I laugh. And if anything has, if any of this has anything to do with the paralysis, then it's a blessing that comes with my illness. Yeah, what a way of looking at it. What a way of transforming that difficult situation, yeah, tragic situation, and opening to what is there. The bright present. I love that expression, the bright present. Not a bright future, but the bright present. Now, I only wanted to read that to you because in a sense, if we really, in a way, grasp our sense of mortality, not in a morbid way, not in a sort of despondent, despairing way, but a sense of grasping our mortality as something that's inevitable, perhaps it opens up something of that experience to us. Yeah? Of living for this hour, not squandering what is here, coming into this moment that is full, absolutely replete with possibility. Yeah. And I think this is what so many thinkers and so many traditions, including the Buddhist tradition, why they've always had this contemplation of death within it. Yeah. <laughs> As Kinchino was um, describing this morning, particularly the, the charnel ground practices, for example, the practices in Satipatthana of looking at the, you know, or even visualizing the sense of a decaying body, yeah, disintegrating body. These are the ones that get passed over quickly in most of Western culture uh, and usually not dwelt on at all. Yeah. Yet these are the sort of things were very much part of Eastern culture and Asian culture, and particularly historically. Um, Tibetans used to have, when I first started living with Tibetans in the early 70s, um, used to have an expression. It used to be quite common. It was just ordinary. It wasn't monastic or anything like that. It was just an ordinary phrase that Tibetans have. And they used to go around saying things like this. You'd say, there's one thing that's absolutely certain. Death. And there's one thing that's absolutely uncertain. When? <laughs> then they'd fall around laughing. Yeah. Yeah, the very opposite of our sort of morbid contraction when we hear about death, because it was in a sense that opening up to living. That's why we take on board a sense of our mortality, is to open us up to a sense of life. But life as it unfolds in a present moment. Now, I know we all have to plan. I know we all have to make plans for the future. You, know, you all had to plan to get here, didn't you? Yeah. You all had to make the time. You possibly even had to diary it out ages ago to get it in here. You had to organize your journeys, some of you coming from quite large distances to get here. So you have to plan. Of course you do. The question is, do you want to always be planning? Yeah. Because actually that's become almost the modus operandi that we have. 
of always planning. Every minutiae of our experience. And that's what we do. Actually, psychologically, we call this discrepancy-based processing. So that journey that you've just engaged in of getting you here, we try to do with our emotions as well, in the same way. In other words, I'm A, and I want to be at B. I'm in the UK, and I want to be in Massachusetts. And so I plan to do it. And that sounds quite okay, and it is okay. Here's a different one. Using the same um, basic strategy. I am unhappy and depressed, and I want to be happy. Now, my planning for my journey was quite simple. I kind of did very practical things to do it, didn't I? And like you would have done to have got here, whether you journeyed by car or aircraft or whatever it was, there's kind of quite practical steps you can take, and they're quite rational steps. This is the rational mind working. And yet, to plan to move from unhappiness to happiness, using the rational mind, usually makes it worse. Yeah? Usually makes it worse. So we're using exactly the same mechanisms. What we're doing in the practice is undercutting that, undercutting that sense of the rational way of trying to solve a problem. We're not a problem. It's interesting, isn't it? We can conceive of ourselves as a problem. A problem to be solved. I'm I'm a problem to be solved. Yet we're not a problem to be solved. If we come, that's not to say there are not things in your life that don't need changing, don't need dealing with. This is not to deny any of that. But the basic actual aspect of our existentiality, of our simply being here, is not a problem to be solved, but it's something to be opened up to. Does this make sense? Yeah. We're opening up to what is here. And without... Well, I will repeat myself, actually. I was going to say, without the risk of repeating myself. I will repeat myself, because I think it's so important. We're opening ourselves up to the abundance of what is actually going on in this moment. In that very, if you like, detailed aspect of our experience. I don't know how it sounds to you, but when I started to unpack it in this way and start to think about it in this way, it made this journey so exciting. It made it so exciting. Because there's always something to be discovered, and I didn't have to go anywhere. Making vast journeys, but without going anywhere. By actually coming into this moment by coming into this present. Which, as I say, often the way it's described, you, know, you wonder why on earth you'd want to come into this present. Yeah. It almost sounds empty. You know, don't go into the future, don't go into the past. Come into the present. But it's never really explained why we should come into the present. And hopefully I'm trying to give you some reason why that this present that we speak about so much is something 
to be treasured, something to be valued, something to be, even if it's difficult, to be engaged with. To really, really be engaged with. Now, there are all sorts of qualities of mind I could talk about that need to be activated for this to happen, and this is really detailed out in Buddhist psychology. But tonight I just wanted to get across to you this basic message of what it is that we're opening to when we start talking about anchoring ourselves in this way by breath and body, by sensations, and simply by, for example, the feeling of pleasure and pain. Anchoring ourselves in this moment. This is what we're anchoring ourselves in to. And actually, in anchoring, we open up to. This is what is happening. And again, I want to just give you another quotation from this, that, this book I've just read to you from. And it's a little passage where her son comes to see her um, when she's writing. And he says this. He says, Gustav comes and stands beside my desk. Do you write all the time, mummy? It takes such a long time, I reply. I only write with two fingers now. Mummy, I'm a miniature human being. What? You're big and I'm little. No, Gustav, you're big. You have your whole life in front of you. The future. Now it's me who's getting smaller. Mummy, every second is a life, he says gently. What did you say? Every second is a life. Where have you heard that? Nowhere. I just made it up. And he carries on. You have hundreds of thousands of lives left, Mummy. Every second is a life, I echo. How often do we think like that? Notice what happens when we think futurally. We lose that sense, don't we? Of this second, this moment, being our life. It's almost like we erase it as we stare into the distance. We overlook what is present to us. We perhaps overlook the beauty to use you know, that playwright's experience, the beauty of the cherry tree. Yeah. We might overlook the beauty of just some basic sensory experience that opens itself and gives itself to us in that moment. We might overlook that expression on somebody's face sometimes of pain, sometimes of joy, that's there. And so what this is is a counterbalance to that sense of ignorance. I've said it very quickly again, ignorance, but it's actually the ignorance. The ignorance of what is here for us right now. What is giving itself to us right now, at this moment. This moment is full. 
if we open ourselves to it in this waking up process that we engage in. There's much, much more to it than just this. I don't want to kind of say we just reduce it to this, but this is an intrinsic part of the experience of waking up, is waking up to this moment, waking up to what this moment holds, waking up to its difficulty, waking up to its beauty, waking up to its joys. If waking up is to mean anything, it's not to go off into... Well, from my perspective, some kind of mystical state is to really be here. There's another whole aspect of this, which hopefully I'll go on and talk later on in the week about, which is how to be here as well in terms of our ethical behavior. Often something that doesn't get talked about so much. This is so important that... Again, that when we open to this moment, that this moment doesn't just become a kind of hedonistic celebration, but it actually also is tied into a sense of being here responsibly. So perhaps rather than ethics, perhaps we ought to talk about living responsibly. Living responsively and responsibly. This is what is part of the path as well. And we can talk about it more technically or we can talk about it in these much more general, hopefully meaningful ways which bring it in line with our experience. But all of it is about coming into how we live. Now the Buddha says, of course, and I'm going to just start to wind up here now, that part of our chosen path of of planning involves, of course, the ignorance. And the ignorance itself then unfortunately pans out in ways I think most of us would agree that are pretty unpleasant, although we engage in them. And these are usually greed and aversion. Greed doesn't, again, have to be just about material things. Greed can be for all sorts of things, even just the simple greed for more and more experiences, more and more outlandish experiences, more and more stimulation. And the aversion, of course, there's always something out there to dislike. Always something out there to dislike. Always something that we can be averse to. And actually sometimes it's within ourselves. There's an awful lot in here to dislike as well for ourselves. So often that ignorance, that ignoring of the richness of our experience gives rise to mechanisms, without going into detail because obviously there's not enough time, but mechanisms which really are the spinning out of the wheels of some forms of craving, greed, desire and aversion. And they spin out. We see them around us, don't we? They're so obvious in this world. And they're obvious in our lives. We don't have to point the fingers at others. We can quickly look at our own lives and often see them spinning out in terms of our own lives. Much of the greed, of course, is futural. Things I want. Things I need to plan for. Things that will supposedly make me happy, which often when we get them, don't. 
that just leave us sense, see feeling unfulfilled. Feeling still that sense of hollowness within. I think from what I've been trying to express this evening is that sense is when we come back, the fullness is not to be found by simply filling ourselves up with stuff, which is the most obvious way that we do it, certainly in our societies. But the stuff can not just be physical things, it can be the desires, the desires for knowledge and position and power and wealth, all the things that are highly valued in our societies, yet still often leave us feeling vacuous when we attain them. It's interesting that, for example, depression in the Western world knows no social strata. You would think it would be actually those who are most deprived who suffer the most in terms of depression. When we begin to look at the way the demographics pan out, it's actually across the whole social spectrum. From very, very wealthy people down to very, very poor people. It tells us something, doesn't it? That when we get hooked into ideas of things that we need, or even when we have them, They don't give us what we want. So, to kind of just pull this last bit together, the present alone is where our happiness resides. This expression by Goethe has echoes of William Blake within it, which some of you might know. To see, if you like, the immortal in the fragile. the infinite in the finite, in this moment, right here, right now. That's what's so wonderful about this journey. Where are we going? Nowhere. (laughs) Often traditions have the idea that we're getting somewhere. We've got to go somewhere else. In other words, to find this happiness. Now, I'm not denigrating them, I'm just saying this is very different because this sense of happiness, this sense perhaps of something I feel is even greater, the sense of peace of mind, which could be equated with equanimity in the Greek tradition called axesis, this sense of peace of mind that we can discover is accessible to all of us here, right now, in this present moment. And that's why it's important, this work that we do, this task perhaps is better than work, that we engage in and perhaps starts to permeate every aspect of our life because it's learning in a sense to discover what is here right now for us in all of its richness in all of its beauty, and sometimes in all of its difficulty. Okay, thank you. Okay, I think we have a short walking session. Let's have a look. Yep.
we have a Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.